Being the Worst, Episode 11, recorded live, Friday, October 12th, 2012. From beingtheworst.com, it's the Being the Worst podcast. Audio apprenticeships for the aspiring software craftsman. With your hosts, Carrie Street and Ridat Abdullah. In this episode, Carrie and Renat discuss the code updates that were made to correct the car factory sample. After that, they introduce the concepts of value objects and strategic modeling. And now, here are Carrie and Renat. Hello, welcome back to Being the Worst. This is Carrie, and I'm here again with Renat. How are you, Renat? With good night from Roy, Ufa. Good night from Ufa and good morning from Southern California. So in this episode, we're going to get into the continuation of our original domain that we started with, the Car Factory domain. And uh, we told you last time that I was going to be wrapping up the homework that was assigned from Episode 7 uh, about Refactory. Uh, that was the name of the episode, and that was about the factory domain and refactoring it literally. And the reason we needed to refactor it a little bit was there was a, an original requirement that was missed, some of the rules between when do you unpack the inventory and, and uh, cargo bay stuff and, and all that stuff that we talked about in those episodes. And in this episode, we're going to review the uh, homework that I did for episode seven, and I'm going to ask some questions about that and kind of get us back on track with that domain. And then in the next episode, we intend to go over the remaining major building blocks that we will migrate this solution to that gets us to the, as Renat would say, the a la locad approach of uh, aggregates with event sourcing and give you those final pieces to to basically get our car factory domain in the structure that locad uses uh, in production or very similar to those things. Uh, is that kind of the plan, Renat? Yep, sounds great. Cool. And the first thing we were talking about a little bit there was uh, I was looking through the structure, the directory structure of our samples and was joking around with Renat. And we thought we might mention that because people might be wondering the same thing I was like, hey, why did we, uh, why is there a directory in our samples called underscore miscellaneous? And that's where the Visual Studio solution file is. And inside of there, inside of each sample, there's a subdirectory called C sharp. And there's actually a good reason for that, Renat. But uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us what that was? Well, uh, this reason actually has really divine meaning b- behind that, and it's called premature optimization. <laughs> uh, as you know, like all developers, and me especially, are extremely good in optimizing for the problems that we'll never actually face. <laughs> and while designing of solutions, the solution structure for the Being the Worst podcast, uh, I was thinking that, hey, at one day we might have multiple languages supported, and why wouldn't we have solution structure that will support multiple languages in the same Git repository? Yep. Uh, and as you can see, the resulting mess with a C-sharp sample folder in each solution episode sample, and also this miscellaneous folder that contains actually a Visual Studio solution, it was caused by that. And the fun part is that in the long run, we have a few additional languages to support, but they're hosted in completely different GitHub repositories, hence rendering my premature optimization not only useless, but harmful. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd go harmful, but the uh, yeah, I, I get the larger point of don't prematurely optimize for problems you may not have. But in, on the good side, we did iterate quickly and realize, you know, hey, it's easier to probably put these in their own repo. And, you know, the next day we had separate repos in GitHub for different languages. And 
So those are all looking pretty clean, but uh, yeah, the original repo does have some leftover artifacts of some good thinking, but not applicable at the moment. Actually, <laughs> while we're on the topic, uh, it reminds me of the text I was writing uh, for internal purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with uh, the proper approach with this solution structure would have been to pick the most simple uh, and working solution, simply hosting multiple projects under the same folder, and switch to the language-specific structure only when it was uh, apparent, needed, and essentially painful not to do that. Mm-hmm. This leads us kind of to pain-driven development, which I've mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And every good developer, he is driven by pain, and he's also almost a perfect zombie. Zombies are brainless, and they're doing really simple things, <laughs> and they are not even capable of doing anything more complex than chasing the fresh humans. Yet at the same point, while being driven by the simple behavior, zombies uh, still manage to accomplish the supreme goal of wiping the humanity from the face of the earth. <laughs> so good developer is a developer that is uh, moved by really uh, like real pain, that is doing extremely simple and stupid stuff, and yet he manages to achieve a grand goal for that. <laughs> well, uh, we can talk about why you think so highly of yourself later, Renat, and maybe I can get you into some counseling for that. But um, <laughs> maybe we'll change our logo to a zombie or something. But uh, no, I get, I get the point. That makes sense. And the I think that could probably be an episode uh, on its own as far as just visual studio solution structure and how you manage those things as the projects grow. And I'm sure as... So we don't get into that now and prematurely talk about it when when we do get into bigger domains and adding multiple, I guess, bounded contexts or whatever we're going to call them. That'll be probably an episode on its own just because I've always been curious, is this the right way to organize this project for long-term maintenance? And, and that'll probably be in more of your the real-world dirty devil of the details uh, episodes probably. Yeah, sure. Brains. <laughs> yeah, brains. Cool. So, well, so that's, what were the like, questions and problems that you were facing while uh, moving forward with implementing the homework? So after I had listened back to episode seven and where we clarified the domain, and it was funny to me because it really boiled down to one common language difference that my brain just kept interpreting the, the word differently. You, you were saying transferred, and I was thinking uh, unpack and inventory, and basically because I, I got those words confused or untranslated in my head differently, I went down the wrong path in the first episode. So what I did in my homework was I took some liberties with the code and I renamed anything that if I read it and it didn't make immediate sense to me, if I had to even think one second, what does that mean again? I changed the name of it so that I could just read it like a sentence and I didn't really care if it was getting too long. I just wanted to make sure I could read it and understand it. I also added a bunch of regions to the code, which I know people hate generally in production, but for this sample code where we had lots of leftover comments, I I just Mm -hmm. put regions everywhere to kind of get them out of the way so I can read them. So an example of that, as I was going along, some of the questions I had. So I'm looking in the episodes program.cs file, because I'll, I'll end up just migrating my homework probably over for this episode, so you, guys mm-hmm. can, so you can look at it. So in program.cs, that's basically where all the tests are, uh, mm-hmm. and so or the specifications. And Hey, actually, I, uh, first, uh, like I loved two things about your last five minutes of monologue. Mm-hmm. First is that you actually went ahead and started renaming things till it made sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this actually reflected your uh, better and deeper understanding 
of this imaginary domain as you were uh, learning more about that. Mm -hmm. So I guess by now you can actually tell stories about the factory. I can. And, and, and I actually spent a little bit of the time when I was running the tests and not only in the end unit test runner, but also in your console one. Didn't spend a ton of time on it, but I I was willing to rename some of the specification names so that when I was reading into the console, if it didn't even read somewhat like an English sentence, like I would say it to a human in the domain, I changed mm -hmm. and added words. You know, I would add like, while, uh, you know, when, when I'm unpacking a shipment in the cargo bay, an unpacked announcement is made with the correct inventory list or something like that. Like, I tried to make it so that when you're reading the specs alone, they would document themselves and should make sense to anyone who's not a programmer. Yeah, that's the story writing, essentially. Yeah, basically. Uh, and the uh, additional thing, when you were thinking about the specifications and you started looking for the specification that looks complex. Mm -hmm. So that's actually a good thing because uh, at this point, it's hard to find a specification that is complex. Although with a traditional CROD model, probably at that point, we could have had already a few behaviors that are rather intricate and not extremely easy to explain. Yeah, totally agree. And I think that might be where the confusion was. Like it was some of the specs, most of the specs actually, or all of them are, were so straightforward and pretty simple that th there wasn't a lot of uh, ceremony going on to just make the test work. So uh, what I was concerned about when I was doing it was, hey, do I need to worry about all the prerequisites for this com this event? And And what I mean by that is, I initially was starting to do things like, well, if I'm about to produce a car, then there's a bunch of other events that usually would have happened. And mm -hmm. I was assuming that I had to actually create a bunch of those fake events just to make this test pass. And it turns out that depending upon the event, you you only need to create the, the pre-work wiring or whatever they call it. An example of that would be if you look inside of the specification for uh, online 127, one when unpack shipment in cargo bay. Mm -hmm. So one of those things, and I don't know if this is the right way to do it. I was just trying to find an easy way. I knew that the event named shipment unpacked in cargo bay, I needed to pass that thing a dictionary of the parts, basically. So I just made up you know, a dictionary at the top of the test that I could use, mm -hmm. um, and so I could pass that later. But when I was getting into the given section of the uh, specification, you know, it was given the yes. set of events what I originally was doing was I was making up all these events that normally would come before something. Right. And yes. it turns out that some of the tests don't need them to pass. And I was like, well, am I cheating? Because I know I can make this test pass if I don't even do the events that normally come through, or should I actually be simulating what really happens before? Mm -hmm. Like what, well, what do you do? There is no hard rule actually about that question mm -hmm. because like this is still kind of area that is being established uh, with regards to practices and patterns. However, what I find using is you discard those prerequisite events that do not make sense for the method that you're testing. Okay. Uh, because these prerequisite events uh, and their dependencies, they will be tested somewhere else in some different method. And here we're setting up only the parts that is essential for us. Okay, good. So as long as as long as we have a unit test, if you will, for each of those other prerequisites and those tests are passing, we don't need to worry about those in, in this specific test. Yes. Uh, so in other words, that while producing the car parts, uh, while producing a car on the factory floor out of the parts, uh, we are not really interested on the entire story of how these parts got to the factory floor. Mm -hmm. We're only interested into the fact that these car parts were actually loaded from somewhere. Okay. And so that makes sense. Thank you. 
So I'm not going to worry about prereqs. I'm just going to really focus on literally making that specific specification and instead of given when then whatever it needs to pass. That's all I'm going to care about for now. Yes. Um, Although uh, once again, it's like that's currently the rule of thumb sticking to, and as in any rule of thumb rule, uh, it works for eighty percent, ninety percent. There okay. are, might be cases specific to your domain where it's essential or important to have a really long story of specification set up. But uh, let the common sense be a guide here. Cool. Thank you. Um, let's see. The other thing that came to mind when I was doing the specs was... So the other thing I was concerned about with the testing approach, and it made me a little nervous, is when I got into the parts of using syntax that I wasn't that familiar with, like messing mm-hmm. around with the lists and doing math with them, I was trying to remember, uh, let me jump over to where that is. Uh, like if you look in factory.cs and okay, I'm looking for where I did that. I believe it's inside of, I think it's in line 97, the unpack in- and inventory thing. By the way, mm-hmm. I didn't really like how I kind of combined two actions in that thing. I was kind of cheating a little bit by saying, well, if you're going to unpack, you have to inventory. That's the rule because I didn't feel like breaking it out into two separate commit methods. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I think normally I would probably break those out, maybe, but that would result in two methods and two commands and two more events, so I don't know. Do you ever find mm-hmm. yourself combining things like that if they do in the real world, or do you always try to keep it really one thing, like unpack would be one thing and inventory is a different thing? Uh, it depends. Okay, cool. I like it depends on that one. That means I wasn't totally wrong. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thanks for throwing me the it depends bone there, Renat. <laughs> well, once again, it's uh, generally in the behavior, uh, well, implementing complex behaviors, one command that is uh, being executed by server, it tends to have more than one event because we're not dealing with uh, CRUD-style behavior like rename customer, customer renamed, or add a new part, new part added. Usually it's more complex, like uh, promote customer to VIP status, and then it will uh, resolve as uh, customer promoted to VIP status, initial bonus given, uh, welcome email sent, uh, his uh, bonus rating improved, or something like this. I see. Cool. All right. Uh, I'm looking for, I know somewhere along the way, I think I just collapsed so much stuff in the code, I'm digging around for it, but when I'm like subtracting stuff from the inventory, wherever the heck that is, I thought it was in a factory state method. Okay. Uh, well, Kara is looking up uh, for the code. One thing I want to highlight is that in this sample code, we have a lot of uh, region statements and a lot of classes are packed together in mm-hmm. one file. And uh, in production code, usually these files are spread out more evenly. But here, since we're interested in having the code being read as a story with comments and with explanations and with certain flow being preserved. Uh, so we're packing uh, multiple classes closer together for the presentation purposes. Yes, exactly. So we'll, it wouldn't take me 45 minutes to find one question I have. Exactly. So uh, here's, here's, a, here's one example that, just to get to it. On line 316, you get into the uh, announce inside factory shipment unpacked in cargo bay event. Mm-hmm. And, so right there, when I was doing things like adding the inventory values and stuff like that, you know, see how I have a list of inventory parts on the shelf and mm-hmm. I find an inventory key and I'm adding some value to it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
normally in the old days, I would have started like echoing values out to the console so I could see or debug statements or something so I could see to make sure that the math was coming out right. And it was a little uneasy for me to go into the specification tests and say, no, I'll just, I'll just try to remember all those tests. And I still feel like I've, I've missed a lot of tests that could, could make the math go wrong. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. do, and what do you do? You, is that how you deal with it though? You, you write the code and then any concern that comes to mind, you just create a test for it and see if it blows up. Yep. Okay, cool. That's what I prefer to do. Okay, cool. Uh, well, by the way, I really love how you were extremely diligent with renaming state variables on uh, factory state. So it, it really reads like a story. Shipments waiting to be unpacked, clear. Employees who have unpacked cargo bay today add the employee from the event. That's extremely terrific. Oh, cool. Thanks. I wasn't sure if I was getting, if that was going on the borderline of not over optimization, but over, over wordiness to make it clear. But like, for example, when I changed, I thought you might want to shoot me when I went in into your factory state and I said, I can never remember what this change thing is. So I'm just going to call it, uh, you know, events that happened or something like that, you know, and then in, in the, uh, in the magical dynamic code, I think that used to be called mutate, and I and for and I realized because I, I was assuming that the mutate thing was kind of some of from your uh, the biological discussions that we had and how this organism mutates or something, but mutate also was a word that wasn't making it immediately obvious to me. So I ch- literally changed it on line three ninety seven to change my state because of parens the event, and I, every time I read it, I'm like. Okay, I remember what's happening. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. So, and it also well, reads like a sentence too. Uh, the, one of the ideas uh, of uh, the aggregates with uh, event sourcing mm-hmm. that will be uh, going uh, probably in the next episode about uh, is that this code is hosted within an application service and via well-defined entry points. Everything that happens within that code, including like the mutate statements, mm-hmm. uh, including all that state variables, these can be changed as you see fit. Oh, cool. Okay. So as long as uh, this uh, result of the changes makes the code more explicit, more readable, more convenient for you, like uh, you can go as wild as you need, all, almost going to the extremes that a uh, Russian writer called Tolstoy went, and he went, he wrote extremely long sentences. <laughs> Good. I'll, tr- I'll strive to be the American Tolstoy then. Yep. Yeah. Right. And I think, uh, so another question that came up, if you look in the solution structure uh, in Visual Studio, there's a there's a markdown file called factory language and rules.md, which is a markdown file. If you open that up, I kind of had a little bit of fun with the, originally back in the early episodes, we, we did an, a creative writing exercise and I kind of cleaned up my old creative writing and made this uh, document sort of reflect what's actually in the code still and and the main reason I was even doing that was because when we talked about the business rules that I got wrong earlier, mm-hmm. I, I needed a place to write them down. And that's when I added the parts at the bottom about factory policies and the business rules because I was trying to remember basically what were the rules, what did I get wrong and, and stuff like that. But it ended up being a really convenient way to know that's exactly how I rem- knew if I had all the right specifications in there. I went mm-hmm. back to those policies and made sure if I didn't have a specification test for each one of those policies that I couldn't be sure that all those rules had been implemented properly. Mm-hmm. So it was a good like. So checklist. in other words, uh, these one line statements in the, uh, in the sections that you call policies mm-hmm. are uh, kind of short descriptions of the specification tests. 
Yes. And so I, uh, that, in other words, that's just another representation of the domain model. Yep. I, I, I'm about to ask you a real world question because that's sort of like the third duplication of work, right? So when, at the end of the day, when I saw this, I'm like, okay, just like specification tests are kind of redoing your code, writing the code again from the actual method code in the aggregates, that's already you know duplication number one for testing. Theoretically, the story or the text that I'm writing in this language file and the policies is the third duplication of that exact business rule. And it seemed like I could cheat if I wanted to to say, and this is when I started refactoring the wording of the specs a little bit and said, you know, if these specs read well enough and I echo them out to the documentation like Renat has mentioned before as possible, I don't know if I'd actually write these rules down in a separate markdown file or Word document because I almost wanted to just get the specifications worded well enough so that I don't need to triplicate. I don't need things in triplicate. I don't need the free text version. I can just use the test as the documentation. Yes, the approach is good. However, in real world, like you can have the domain extremely well covered by detailed specifications. Mm-hmm. Uh, but imagine a high-level manager yeah. <laughs> who has his time priced extremely highly and he has to dive into the domain and uh, like uh, like grab have get an immediate grasp of what is doing and if it's core pieces core functionality uh, is behaving as expected so you can't really think that you will have time to read through all the detailed specifications however if you had high level extract of this uh, specifications like short summary kind of table of contents mm-hmm. uh, then in that case it would be worth producing such a document and keeping it updated this document will be worth it itself only if two conditions are fulfilled first language in this uh, short specification summary is the same as it is used in the code and as it is used in the specifications and uh, also as it is used by domain experts and second uh, is that this short document is maintained updated got it technically what can be done it may be is to rename method calls or test uh, cases on the specifications so that they will be even longer than they currently are, but that they will be readable as these sentences that you have in policies. Yeah, and the reason that even came to my mind was because I saw some of the tricks you were doing in the console output, you know, how you were just removing like the test underscore things, and it was echoing to the console pretty cleanly. And I was wondering if you had ever written a utility or written something where something is slightly better than just a screenshot of that console and handed that to a domain user and say, read this and tell me if anything's wrong. <laughs> well, I was trying to do that in multiple cases, but once again, when you present them with uh, pages and pages uh, of specifications, no matter how precise they are, that's the best way to ensure that nobody will actually read the specifications <laughs> unless they are, uh, will be responsible with their job for the, having the specifications correct. Okay. That was mainly all the questions I think that came to mind when I was doing that. The the other thing I just wanted to point out for people listening so that they can get their bearings a little bit as they're following through the exercises just so that you're not totally lost because there's quite a bit of code in this sample for the reasons we talked about earlier. Um, the main changes, other than the formatting and some of the renaming I did inside a factory, I, I tried to add comments so you guys could follow, you know, why did I change the word mutate to something else? Why did I change the word changes to... Uh, events that happen and stuff like that. There's comments that will will help you with that. But the main thing that was wrong that needed to be added 
and the new code, the significantly new code that wasn't uh, in episode seven, you would want to look inside the um, the new method on line ninety seven is the new mainly the new stuff, and that's in the aggregate of factory aggregate. In line 97, uh, it says unpack an inventory shipment in Cargo Bay. And if uh-huh. you follow that and the, re- the corresponding event that came from that, that's mainly the new code. And that's where I took my guess at implementing what I got wrong originally. And so that's the focus of the changes, uh, the new code, if you want to look into that when you guys uh-huh. are doing that. And I think that's pretty much it. The way that this flows into what I think we said we would discuss next time, Renat, was fix the bug, make sure the business rules are working with the existing domain we've been working on the whole time. And then we were going to get into the other major building blocks like application services and domain services and the DSL stuff that would not only begin to evolve our Visual Studio solution and code into more modular pieces, but also add the other components that are needed to really start architecting and structuring the solution to be very similar to what you guys use in production, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. And actually, uh, before moving that in that direction, mm-hmm. uh, I want to add a few more small things. Uh, for the last two weeks, like in parallel to doing the being the worst work, I was actually using materials from being the worst to coach one of the new developers at Locad. Cool. Uh, and he was doing the same factory sample, but pushing it slightly further. And this gave an opportunity of actually experiencing how you explain the same domain to one more person. And uh, one additional insight that, for example, we, uh, I gained is that the shipment that comes into the factory in car parts are not one and the same thing. Uh, that was previously causing some confusion because uh, our developer, he was thinking that as soon as shipment came into the factory, he can already use that for the car production. Are you sure he actually said that? Because if he did, I feel much better because that was basically the original problem I had with all that wacky code, remember? Mm-hmm. <laughs> was actually introducing inventory shipment. Uh, it was a value object. Uh, actually, so it was a class. So uh, in this inventory shipment was a class with uh, two properties. Mm-hmm. One part was uh, shipment name, and the other part was uh, collection of car parts. So uh, when a new inventory shipment arrives to cargo floor, it's uh, a package that contains car parts inside. And once we replaced like this uh, flat collection of car parts with a shipment, it became immediately much harder to try to enumerate, enumerate these car parts when you try to produce a car because you had to actually go inside of each shipment and look what's inside. As it doesn't make sense in the code, it doesn't make sense in the reality as well. Yes. So uh, then it became more intuitive and native that first, before you can actually use car parts, which are currently stored inside the inventory shipment, you need to unpack the thing. So uh, that was actually a small technical and code-wise uh, improvement. However, it improved the readability and ability of the code to deliver meaning. And this inventory shipment class, it's uh, actually called value object in uh, DDD. It's something that might not always have uh, a unique identity within the entire system. However, it's something that provides additional meaning to the system just because it has a distinct name 
it has uh, a distinct purpose. And this class might be used maybe only to transfer a set of values from one uh, method to another, or maybe to be included in command and one event, just to make sure the values within this command and event sound slightly more readable. So uh, technically-wise, adding this one small class, it doesn't cost us anything. It's just a few lines of code. However, uh, from the practical standpoint, having this one small class that uh, aligns our code deeper to the domain, it can save a domain expert or a developer a few minutes of discussion. More than that, it can actually save them from a confusion when somebody doesn't understand and accidentally manages to implement the method, the behavior, in a wrong way, uh, thus leading to the necessity of recording one more uh, episode of being the worst. So if I was smart enough to introduce this uh, inventory shipment value object and concept in the beginning of the podcast, it could have saved us already two hours. So one small <laughs> class to hold additional meaning can already save two hours in a simple podcast in an imaginary domain in sample project. Imagine how much value can this clarification bring to production use cases. That's a great point. And I think, and I want to make sure I'm relating this properly because I, I believe I am, but I looked back while you were speaking to episode five's factory and on line 163 is an example of me doing all this crazy code to try to rip apart those shipments in, in inventory things because there was no value object. It's It sounds like we, me and your new uh, hire had a similar challenge there. We were, we were doing similar things. We we're pulling out inventory of shipments and ripping them apart and trying to keep track of wheels and engines and stuff. I don't know how exactly how he did it, but you guys can see that in episode five's uh, line 163 of factory.cs. That's where some of this crazy code that might be similar to what we're not talking about exists. And that set me down this path of the problem and needing to refactor. So I think that part's very similar. And then the only difference because what's important to me is to understand the value object concept, and I think I'm starting to now, is when I refactored this homework for this episode, I didn't use a new concept called a value object because I hadn't learned that yet. But what I did do, I basically created a new list object in the factory that said, like, uh, I think it's at the top with all the other ones or yeah, yeah. there's a new list called Inventory of Parts on Shelf. Well, mm-hmm. this is actually kind of, it's related, but maybe not the same thing. Like, that's the place where I'm tracking the parts on the shelf, and I just cheated and used a dictionary. But what I didn't like so much was I wasn't sure of the proper way to pass those variables around in the event so that the next thing in the line could get it. And it sounds like I either inadvertently created a value object, but instead of using a structure of a class, I just you know, made it a list variable. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay. Is it, so that's basically what I did. What I, instead of making that custom list variable to pass things around in events, the mm-hmm. proper way would be to create a value object and use that to pass it around. Yes, absolutely. Oh, perfect. So uh, you missed one more opportunity to add a few more sentences and readability to the code. <laughs> now Darn. you know that, and you'll probably explode that to the new unseen levels. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't, we'll see. We'll see. Um, we'll see where it goes. But what's cool about that is every time in the past I had read, because uh, I believe a value object is is a concept from domain-driven design. 
Yes. I believe that's from there. And we haven't gotten too much into that yet. But every time I read about it, and even when you look online, they seem like they're pretty straightforward definitions. But until I until you just said that and put a real example in front of my face, I was still kind of unsure of when do I use a value object versus uh, I, I can't entity. What, yeah versus entity. an entity. And it sounds like it's because they always said something like a value object is a thing that you know you don't care about its identity basically. Mm-hmm. And and in, in this case, it's a perfect example. I don't care about the identity. I just have a list of car parts that I need to get passed over to the next thing in line. And instead of just creating a new list variable, I can create a strongly typed class called, in your case, you guys called it inventory shipment, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Something yes. like that. And then that's how you pass those things around and it all makes much more sense. Yes. And this is applicable not only to the code that uses aggregates with event sourcing, but even simple service architecture-based code or anything else, uh, if you are facing situation, for example, when you're passing the same set of variables together over and over again, or when you have a, you are creating tuple, maybe it's the opportunity for you to change that purely technical code and pass and create a small class that will be used only to pass information from one method to another, but this class will have inherent meaning and it will be more readable. And actually, uh, as I've learned from uh, practitioners uh, around Europe, like uh, Jeremy or Yves, when you push this concept uh, forward in really complex domains, you might find yourself actually not even having a lot of simple value types. Value type in a language is kind of integer, byte, string, uh, etc., and uh, what these practitioners tend to do is that if they have, for example, an integer, like number or currency, they tend to wrap it with a simple structure that is value object, which holds an integer, but it has a name. And this such value object can be used all across the code base. Uh, it has two side effects. First, the code becomes more readable. You're not passing an integer now, that has a meaning. You're passing something that has value in its own, and that also happens to be represented as an integer. Second thing, for example, if you have a method that accepts an integer, and uh, it treats this integer as a value that has some meaning, you still have uh, room for error when person will pass some other integer, or maybe do an addition uh, to an integer that has a meaning. However, if you have instead of integer, uh, amount of car parts required, or maybe a currency amount, or whatever else, you will not be able to pass in, uh, some other integer into that argument. You'll be for either forced to wrap it or cast it, or just to get the proper value from the, its origin. It sounds like value objects serve two major purposes, and that's one, to protect us in code, to, to add more specificity and definition to the parameters that our code takes so we can't pass the wrong types of things in from a coding perspective. And it also, probably more importantly, gives us a better way to refine the domain language we're speaking to give new words more meaning. Instead of speaking generically like person, I can say uh, Russian person male, you know, or something, you know, just more specificity on what am I talking about from generic to very uh, definite, you know, integer versus Russian currency or whatever. Or person's age 
or distance in meters, etc., etc. Uh, in other words, if you bring these two uh, side effects together, uh, using value objects, it allows us to extend compiler time checking all the benefits of a compiler uh, to make it aware about the domain model. So now we're actually building some higher level language, some higher level tooling using the bare uh, bones of our C-sharp code or whatever code we have. And this way the compiler becomes aware of the domain model and it can add some additional checks or it can help us to find and discover some problems in the domain model that we would otherwise miss. I see. It's just a slightly, a little bit one more level of abstraction, I guess, from, you know, just like C-sharp puts pretty syntax above uh, whatever, when 32 API calls or zeros and ones or whatever <laughs> raw machine code, this is a way to wrap a basic concept like an integer in, in a way that is more expressive at a higher level of language uh, for our domain. Yes. Yeah, in other cool. words, using uh, creating a construct that are expressed in C-sharp code, but they deal with much higher level concepts than the code would ever be able to deal and this applies not only to the business domain models and as they are implemented in aggregates with event sourcing, but to other technical domains or the code that doesn't even touch event sourcing. That's a universal principle. And yeah. it has been covered, I guess, by a lot of really smart people in other books. That's how you turn a general purpose programming language into a more domain-specific language of code, I guess, or however you'd say that. Yes. And while we're also on this topic... Uh, one additional thing. So uh, we're turning the compiler language, the whole programming language, into domain-specific language. However, while doing that, we need to be aware about the bounded context. So that we'll not actually try to make this language, a <laughs> newly created language, uh, completely ubiquitous and universal. Mm -hmm. Like these new terms, they'll have uh, their meaning. They'll be most applicable only in, uh, in one domain. And this one domain can be hosted within one project, a set of projects, but we still need to be aware that there is some boundary outside of which these new terms are less usable and they can cause confusion. And we need to be aware of these boundaries. Maybe we need to express them somewhere in the code, in readmes, or to limit them uh, by namespaces. And we need to fight for these boundaries and preserve them. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Just like there's a border, geographic borders, and some country speaks a different language, and my language makes no sense to them. It's the same kind of concept. Borders have different understandings of things that I would say and what they mean. And mm -hmm. and, and because of that, and this may not be the right thing, but because you brought it up, and, I, and we, you could punt for later if you want, but it's always confused me, and I'd love if there was a wonderfully simple answer, but I still do not comprehend what the difference is between a bounded context and a domain. Like, well, I never know where to stop those boundaries because I could argue that, well, this company is one giant domain of uh, the stock stock market trading company. It's a big stock market trading company. That's the domain. But there's a department in there called day traders or something, and that's a bounded context. Like, I never know where to draw that line. Any thoughts on the difference? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I might be uh, slightly biased and wrong. Well, and totally and completely wrong, but here's my take. Okay. The domain, when it's used as a standalone word, it just refers to some problem space 
uh, to some area in real world that we try to capture. Uh, bounded context uh, is a way to break this domain into smaller, more manageable pieces to break uh, and so that we can understand them and tackle them separately. And we identify bounded contexts by the natural boundaries that exist in this domain in real world. These natural boundaries can be language, like maybe there is a group of people that are using same technological terms and they happen to communicate closer together. Or uh, maybe there are organizational boundaries, like maybe there is a department that works closely together and hates all other departments. <laughs> or maybe, I don't know, there is a technical, uh, there is some software that has been around for so long that people who are using it uh, developed a third eye and pair of tentacles and completely unpronounceable language. <laughs> so a bounded context is a boundary that exists in the real world and that helps us to break the domain into a set of more manageable pieces that can be tackled, uh, tackled separately. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Here's where I fail. Because I think once you start getting familiar with a specific domain, you start to see where some of those boundaries occur and where you might want to separate that, um, depending upon what you're, the problem you're trying to solve. And when I go to separate it, when you, when you find those boundaries, Renat, do you is that where you start creating like a separate C-sharp project for each bounded context, or is that also depends? Uh, as you have properly guessed, it depends. <laughs> uh, now, uh, okay, now let's do a how's it called jump of faith and try to get in slightly uh, more complicated area in which I'm a complete noob and will probably talk nonsense. Mm -hmm. But still, uh, bounded contexts are boundaries that we identify in the real world, mm -hmm. and they are hints for us to solve problems. Likewise, in the real world, we have a countries which are separated by, by boundaries. Mm -hmm. However, there are sometimes groups of people uh, that are uh, being settled around and their boundaries don't match country boundaries. For example, uh, in Russia, we used to have uh, to be uh, one mighty country called USSR, which had uh, the best vodka, bears, and nuclear missiles. Yes. Uh, after the country uh, broke down, which uh, a lot of people believe that it was caused by the United States, by the way, well, that was by uh, intent. Are, I mean, we, we have intended multiple <laughs> different geographic regions. Yeah, but there are still people who talk the same language. So here we have the situation where uh, actual boundaries they don't match linguistical boundaries, and we have the same this situation in uh, like this geographical domain, and this is actually uh, the situation we'll have in a lot of business domains. So uh, due to a lot of reasons. We can have uh, bounded contexts that are structured one way, and we can have uh, implementation domains. Sometimes they are called like core domain, supporting domain, generic domain, mm -hmm. that are more closely related to existing solutions or projects or software components uh, as they are implemented in the real world. And usually when you're starting to develop a completely new system, completely new application, and that's what happened uh, a lot of times at Locat. Mm -hmm. uh, you will have these projects or solutions aligned closely with bounded contexts. Ideal case is one to one. Okay. Wait, you said solutions or project one to one? Uh, it's on the size of the bounded context and how many uh, cases you have. Okay. The important part is that you will decide okay, uh, my bounded context is that big. 
and uh, in this bounding context, I uh, have an entire solution field uh, can fit, fit, or I can have a group of projects inside a solution fit in a single bounded context. It uh, all depends on the uh, size of the projects that are common in your company in your environment. So when we learn the sort of the final structure, or at least the the current way that production solutions and projects get structured when you're starting, because I know you guys use it, locad.secures, you use that kind of as a starting template for a project. This thing will sort of naturally evolve depending upon the domain, the bounded context, and what we're trying to solve. And then from that basic, simple template, as you start doing that, you may end up just refactoring the way that the solution and projects are structured as you learn more and as you go. Yes. Okay. Uh, and uh, to provide a short answer, currently at Locat, we're generally sticking to have uh, one project uh, to contain everything from one bounded context. And uh, within one Visual Studio solution, we can have multiple bounded contexts, which are represented by different projects. Can you give like an example of what... An example uh, is SalesCast 2 product by mm-hmm. Locad. Mm-hmm. Uh, off the top of my head, it has at least two bounded contexts. One is uh, Behavioral Core, which is responsible for managing customer, uh, customer projects. Uh, well, customer project is different concept within Locad. Uh, for uh, running these projects, for discovering uh, automatically settings for these projects, for configuring them. Uh, and there is one more bounded context. Uh, context manages integration with uh, specific subsystems uh, like Oracle databases, MySQL databases, uh, Postgre, etc., etc. And separating this uh, into bounded context, uh, we just followed the hints that we had in our own language and uh, split the entire product functionality in two distinct areas that can be perceived and tackled more or less separately. So, so the team that works on the, the offering from Locad called SalesCast2, when they're working on their code, it sounds like there's one Visual Studio solution for SalesCast2, and inside of there, there's projects to address each of those bounded contexts that you just talked about. Yes. That concrete example gives me a much better idea of how I would think about building my solutions when when other people are going to get involved to maintain code. I was always a little unsure about that, but that helps a lot. Thank you. Okay, and while we're on the topic, actually, I want to introduce like two more concepts. Okay. Uh, first concept stems from the fact that in reality, we're not always starting from the scratch. More often than not, we'll have an existing set of projects like uh, components uh, running software systems, ERP systems, uh, that are being used in an enterprise or a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and quite often, these components uh, will be quite stretched. They can cross, actually, multiple bounded contexts, just because that's the way the system has evolved. Or uh, they can actually be so limiting that they will squeeze multiple bounded contexts in one place, melting them completely together. Uh, So from technical perspective, uh, domain, when we're talking about in terms of core domain, supporting domain, generic domain, it's more technical implementation uh, that exists in the real world that we have to deal with. It's current solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Core domain, uh, it's a set of existing uh, maybe functionality, maybe code that deals with core business behaviors and practices of the company. It is essential for the company to survive. Uh, supporting domain is a set of existing functionality 
That is not critical. That doesn't uh, host core business concept of the business, uh, but it is essential uh, for its functionality. For instance, in case of Locad, our core business functionality, our core domain is about forecasting or uh, delivering big data analytics for retail. But we still have other domains that are essential for our functionality, although they are not our core. Uh, for example, accounting or uh, customer relationship management. And this software, it's, uh, it's usually bought from the outside and plugged into the big picture. It's in somewhere. Uh, and there is also another uh, supporting kind of uh, domain. Uh, it's supporting domain or generic domain. Uh, once again, that's something that can be uh, outsourced. That's something that can be bought. It's something so generic that nobody really bothers. But it's still essential. Maybe email management system, some specific email management system, or car park blueprint library. I see. It lines up really well. You know, your core domain aligns directly with your the business's core competencies or the things generally people recommend. You don't outsource your core competencies because that's the main thing that gives you your competitive advantage that makes you different from everyone else. Uh, and so when we look at that at existing company, at existing code, so we'll have a set of domain elements which are already implemented and uh, are interacting somehow. We'll have core domain, we have supporting subdomains, we have generic domain. And by the way, this terminology is uh, explained more deeply in uh, Vons IDD, IDDD book. Oh, good. Uh, and also, uh, in the company, we also have natural bounded contexts, the boundaries, the, the inherent boundaries. And it might often happen that the inherent bound, uh, boundaries within the organization, the linguistic boundaries, uh, they're not matching the boundaries of these uh, domain pieces simply because these uh, domain pieces were implemented in the code so much time ago uh, that the business evolved since that point. Or maybe uh, some genius uh, CTO has decided that they're going to buy or build unique generic software that will handle all the problems at once. And they stuffed all multiple uh, business concerns into one uh, core domain, as we thought. Mm-hmm. In essence, they had a huge mess. Yes. So we have a disparity between the way uh, natural bounded contexts exist and how this, uh, uh, they are implemented in the domain pieces. When we think about the company at such high level, is good to draw a context map or at least visualize it. Uh, context map is our understanding of existing boundaries, of existing natural boundaries within the organization uh, versus the existing solutions to the problems of an organization. And more often than not, when we are talking about real-world company, these boundaries will not match exactly. They will overlap, they will contradict, maybe they will conflict. Exactly as it is with uh, real-world geopolitics, we can have multiple nationalities that are living in neighboring countries and they're fighting really hard to reunite. Or we might have multiple nations within one country that are fighting really hard to have their own country. Or we have all sorts of interesting conflicts or interrelationships. So when we're talking about software and we're talking about the context map, 
The context map is our high-level strategic viewpoint on the situation of the company. And ideally, this viewpoint will uh, keep in mind and consider all the primary factors. The primary factors being the current implementations, the current solutions, which are expressed in uh, existing pieces of the domain that are hosted there, core domain, supporting domain, generic domain, uh, and also natural boundaries, which could probably uh, help to have better solution or to have more natural and cost-effective solution. And these natural boundaries, we find them by looking at real world and trying to get some hints about how the business would love to be structured, how it would love to be organized and separated into separate pieces that are not large, that are not too small, that are just of the right size and that are interacting happily and that they can grow individually. Uh, these natural boundaries can be identified by looking at the language, how people are forming groups in an organization, how people are passing documents around, how people are passing uh, and structuring their workflows, etc., etc. I have read a couple of your blog posts related to that topic, and what I'm thinking right now from a from a listener's perspective is I think that we might be able to either include a couple of those context maps that you've given as examples on the blog or make them specific to the car factory, or if we should just treat that as an, it sounds like it could be a potentially big topic that maybe we treat this as an introduction and in a different episode, we can focus entirely on that and how you go through that modeling exercise and how you think about it. I don't know if you, if that's a something we can add on to this episode and say pretty much we've covered it, or if there's a lot more to, to talk about there to create and understand what what all that is. No, that's just a tip of an iceberg okay. and much larger and bigger topic. Uh, probably the proper name for that is strategic modeling. Okay. Uh, and if you recall the study map that we had laid out like way in the beginning of being the worst podcast, uh, like there is a separate topic on the strategic level. Cool. So we'll get to that. It'll have its own time and place for all the details of that because I had a lot of questions in there and, and I think it'll, it'll help to see the visuals of that and really walk through what do you do when you're doing strategic modeling. So, And currently with regards to our factory sample, we're at the level of detailization that is too low and too detailed. Okay. Because uh, in order for the factory to be like factory, aggregate or this tiny factory domain is one tiny spot uh, within the probably huge context map of a car producing uh, corporation. Right. Yeah. General Motors or um, Honda or whatever. Yeah, exactly. This is one little dot in the giant ecosystem of automobile manufacturing industry. So got it. Cool. Okay, well, so are we thinking in the next episode we want to introduce those few remaining lower-level concepts, uh, application services, domain services, DSLs, things like that, and uh, treat those as distinct topics in that episode to cover what they're going to be, and then maybe after that we'll combine all that together in, in wrapping up the factory in, in the sort of the, the more production-worthy way, or what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking let's avoid premature optimization and discuss that when we get to the next episode. Okay, cool. Well, that's a good idea because we're we're running long on this one. But uh, I think that'll do it for this episode. We'll post the code 
I'll say all the stuff I normally do. We're at being the worst on Twitter, being the worst.com. Leave us your comments. We appreciate it. The Trello board is also receiving uh, more and more comments on there or suggestions for episodes. And as I re-listen to episodes, I'm also trying to keep track of the promises we've made for future topics. And so you guys can look on there and see if I've remembered to do that or if there's anything else. And I think that will do it. Anything else or not on this one? Well, first of all, two uh, apologies. First apology for making this episode once again slightly long, longer than expected, but we just got carried away. Yep. And second apology is uh, I apologize for getting really slow on emails and activity on the community group just because we got too much of exciting and interesting stuff going at Locat and outside in the development community. But hopefully... We'll try to catch up. No problem. I, I saw some of your tweets that had some links to some really cool new LOCAD stuff that I can't wait to uh, conceptually at least dig into because uh, there's some interesting stuff in there that I, I was thinking could make some pretty cool episode topics. So, But we're a little premature. We're not we're not ready to get there yet on our study map. But at, at some point, there's going to be some cool stuff in there. So. Yeah, absolutely. Cool, man. All right. Well, I'll talk to you next time, and we'll see you guys next time. Uh, take it easy. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye.